Here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to another super terrific happy hour. Joining me, as always, to make the hour all three of those things is the effervescent Stephanie. Uh-huh. How are you? It's wonderful to be with you again. Yes, likewise, likewise. How you are up in the mountains now? I am. I'm right at home in bear country. So, <laughs> hang in. Have you seen any yet? I haven't yet, um, but I'm sure they're hiding around the tree waiting for me to come up and... Uh, they'll, all be, they'll all be scared of you. A bear the size of you, they will be terrified. Yeah. You've got nothing to worry about. Well, look, Steph, I mean, as always, there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. And I've, what actually made me think this week was the F word, which was something that you started writing about. And I figured there were all kinds of F words yes. that we could noodle around <laughs> this week. But, but why don't we kick off with the F word that you particularly had in mind? Because it, it, I, I think it's an important point for people to be aware of. And, and I suspect a lot of people aren't really thinking that far ahead as you tend to do. Well, the F word that I've been thinking about hasn't been something anyone's had to think about for a very, very, very long time, much to my chagrin. Um, and that F word, of course, is the, the fundamentals. 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 Do they, do they still matter? No, they haven't. But, you know, we'll see. I, I remain optimistic. I am uh, perennially optimistic that the fundamentals will reassert at some point. But it does really feel like we're at a point now, given the tilt in the Fed's, you know, body language or however you want to characterize it, that the prospect of just being able to ride an endless liquidity wave that makes the fundamentals irrelevant looks like it's diminishing or, you know, at least we've got some kind of general time frame on when it may end. And that was reinforced yesterday with Powell's uh, comments where he seemed a little bit more nervous, shall we say, about uh, the headline inflation numbers and how far ahead of the 2% target they had run and a little less confident that it will be transitory. So that opens up the real possibility for a policy mistake, which I always kick myself for underestimating the probability that the Fed will get it wrong because their track record is flawless in this regard. You know? Another F word, yep. Right, exactly. F for flawless Fed floundering. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> this is turning into an episode of Sesame Street. Oh, my God. But, but Well, let, let's talk about the Fed and some of the language coming out of them because obviously they have an awful lot pinned on this transitory thing. Right, this idea of that inflation's transitory and they've been trying to calm down the horses and stop anybody getting too freaked out by the prints that they saw coming and they knew we were going to get. And sure enough, we're getting them now almost monthly, it seems, both CPI and PPI, which I think caught a lot more people by surprise this week, perhaps. Mm-hmm. How have you seen 
the change in the Fed language? Because you mentioned there that you felt they get a bit wobbly, and I sense that too. But how have you seen them change their their attitude and their kind of their jargon over this? Well, it makes you wonder. What, obviously, you have Fed governors on the tape every day with different comments. And I think that the really surprising one was a couple of weeks ago when Bullard, who tends to be incredibly uh, dovish, actually came out and sounded more like he was in the hawkish camp. Um, and that sort of set the tone of people starting to think, well, maybe the Fed is really going to end up having to taper sooner. But, you know, I, I guess I wonder, listening to this sort of uniformity of the of the commentary from the Fed as to whether they really are crazy enough to be trying to blow a little froth, another F word, off of the <laughs> markets. You know, was that sort of an objective? Because clearly the markets were just going berserk on this idea that we were going to have QE forever, coupled with this endless torrent of fiscal stimulus. I mean, it seems like every day, Another F word, fiscal. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> listen, 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 if we keep going through all these F words, we're going to end up with the right one. You know that. <laughs> well, alphabetically, we'll get there yeah. at some point. But yeah, so it just feels like they clearly have tried to send out a message that they're thinking about thinking about tapering and have been, I guess, monitoring the market's reaction to that. Do you feel like there's a, a real shift or do you think this is rhetoric or do you think that people are getting overly excited about what really isn't much of a shift in tone at all? Uh, you know, I think that they're getting a little bit frightened, to use another effort, <laughs> because there's a lot hanging on this transitory thing, right? There's an awful lot hanging on this that, that right now they've managed to hang the whole ball of wax on this transitory thing. They've been kind of clever and not exactly defining the period of time that, that they decide is transitory, which is, I guess, smart. Some will call it disingenuous, but we, we don't have a time frame for that. But obviously, the longer it goes on and, and expectations start becoming embedded, the bigger problem it becomes. And, and when we think about what's happening here and we think about the input costs going up, mm -hmm. uh, everyone's kind of using this, this lumber chart saying, oh, well, the, the lumber spikes over, so we don't have to worry about this anymore. But... We, you know, you and I commented on this last time we spoke about the the number of conference calls where where companies were talking about having to pass on price increases to consumers. Those kinds of price increases tend to be sticky. They don't tend to take them away again. And so, transitory seems to refer to the rate of change of this stuff, but. The price hikes that are really going to be necessary in the second half, I think, for, for a lot of these companies, and we're seeing that not just in finished goods, but you know, yesterday, I think, or a couple of days ago, we saw BlackRock give us a pay increase to 18,000 members of staff. We've seen a bunch of you know, the Walmarts of the world, the Amazons of the world, jump, bump up minimum wages. These are sticky, very sticky mm -hmm. increases. So... There's kind of two narratives at play. There's the transitory in that we think the increase is going to slow down from 5.4% to 2%, right? Good luck with that happening in any reasonable short time frame. But does that really matter if the kind of pig is halfway through the python, prices have gone up, people are struggling even more to be able to pay for their weekly grocery bills, and 
there is pressure on rates to go up. That, that's the thing that I'm wrestling with is, does it really matter if the Fed are right about transitory? Can they really point to, oh, uh, we've gone from 5% down to 4% on our way back to 2%. Is that really a victory? And I'm not so sure that it will be. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, the point on the stickiness is so important because, you know, you read these stories about how Kellogg's is now shrinking the boxes yeah. and charging this apron uh, clause in inflation. Um, they're not going to go and start increasing the box size again. You know, that's just so. And, and obviously the wage situation is even more important being the number one cost of labor. The thing that I wrestle with and you and I go back and forth on the, the inflation transitory, uh, not transitory debate is the degree to which you talked about embedded expectations and consumers starting to believe that, you know, they don't know that the Fed thinks it's transitory. All they know is that everything that they're buying has gone up a lot in price. Right. And the question is, what does that result in from the standpoint of their behavior? And I think it's it's really very hard to draw hard and fast conclusions about that now because it's too early, obviously. But yeah. you're seeing, like today, we got this University of Michigan sentiment number, and it went down a lot while inflation expectations went up. And within that, there is a question that asks, do you expect your income to outpace inflation over the next five years? And that hit its lowest level in you know six years, and it hit that level on the way up before. So I'd have to go back and look right. at when it actually fell down to this level. Um, but that's not indicative of confidence. I think what I wrestle with in terms of this inflation debate is the degree to which people are now seeing that the cost of everything they can't live without is going up, and it's going up fast and hard. And they say, holy crap. You know, if I'm going to have to pay that much more for my weekly grocery bill, I better calm down on all this other stuff that I've been spending money. You know, maybe I won't go to Soul Cycle five times a week. Maybe I'll go once, or maybe I'll, you know, exercise outside, or maybe, you know, when I when I'm getting it is just broadly. That's where, and maybe I'm being too cute by half. I agree with Powell on the transitory, just because I feel like in the aggregate, it's going to be very hard for consumers to absorb a generalized increase in prices. But what, you know, the jury's out. And a lot of it will depend too on the fiscal response because you know, we, we had part of a major crux of the argument for the Fed for this inflation being transitory has been this elimination of the $300 federal unemployment bonus and that that would free yeah. up the supply of labor and that that would help get everything going again. Suddenly the supply chain situation would ease up and, and whatnot. But, you know, just this week, we get $300 child tax credit checks going out. Yeah. So basically it's a wash, you know, that $300 unemployment benefit is now a child, t you know, credit. So as long as the stimulus is there, I guess the question remains as to whether people will absorb higher prices across the board or where, whether they'll be selective. And as I said, I mean, I think it's really too early to tell, but um, I don't think it's a slam dunk. But the bond market is, seems to be pretty confident, right? The bond market seems pretty confident in its views and it's not, it, it, a lot of these numbers that come out that you would expect to set off chain reactions across the treasury curve in the precious metals markets. It's just not yeah. happening. I mean, I guess what's interesting to note is that 
Um, first, that PPI inflation is still massively outpacing the CPI inflation. Yep. So that is an implicit margin squeeze for businesses, which should be a drag on employment and capex in the economy generally. So in that regard, I kind of understand why the long end of the bond market is acting the way it is. But you have seen the two-year move higher. So you've got sort of a flattening of the yield curve on the idea that you know maybe the Fed will have to tighten sooner because the inflation pressures are in there. But as to whether or not that is inflation that's associated with a strengthening economy or whether we're going to get more of a stagflationary environment, I think that's the signal. At least that's how I interpret the bond market. Do you have a different, how do you, how do you no, I, th- I think that's exactly how I interpret it too. I, th- I think that's that's what it's screaming at us. And look, it's got a much better track record of being right than the Fed, let's face it, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It, it really does. But I just wonder how screwed up the transmission mechanism is because of all the stimulus money that's found its way into the bond market. You know, when we, when we talk about the bond market, we tend to talk about something that doesn't exist anymore, i.e., a market free of government intervention, a market that right. sets prices and, you know, it does the right thing by the economic conditions. But obviously we don't have that anymore. So I, I struggle to understand what the bond market does in the face of a real recession or real inflation now, because I have to think that the transmission mechanism will be so clogged up that it won't reflect future conditions, it will at some point have to play catch up to present conditions. I, you know, I really don't know because we, we haven't seen this really since 08. We haven't had a recession to really understand how bond market functions in a world driven purely by QE. And we certainly haven't seen any real inflation. We had you know a one, I think, brief spike in inflation, um, which died down again. So we don't really know what the bond market does in, in the face of sustained inflationary pressure. And we don't know what it does in the face of a, of a recession anymore, and so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking at it going, well, okay, it gives me some confidence that right. things maybe are going in a certain direction, but I, I you know, I've never seen, I don't say I've never seen, but it's very rare that you get an aha moment in the bond market where the, suddenly the bond market goes, oops, we got this wrong, right? And right. I just wonder if that's the big head fake here that uh, whether the government. Uh, the, sorry, the, the central banks remove themselves or they get overrun, that suddenly there's a realisation that, ah, okay, if the Fed are taken out of the picture, the bond market is in completely the wrong place. Right. Oh, absolutely. Well, the bond market is the least of the problems. It's everything that's priced <laughs> to it, you know, junk, uh, stocks, everything that has been valued uh, on the basis, you know, compared to risk-free treasuries that are, in fact, just a completely manipulated market that don't reflect any real reality. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's an open question, but I also have a high degree of confidence that it's a question we'll never find the answer to because when we get to that moment when you're about to find out what the bond market would do without the Fed support, they're going to come in, uh, you know, with uh, guns a-blazing and have to provide even that much more support, I would guess both here and around the world. So I, I don't know, I, I guess. That's kind of, when, when I sit and think about this, which, I mean, to be honest, I spend way too much time doing it. I really ought to get some kind of a life. But, but when I sit and think about this stuff, that's... <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> at least I've got you to talk to. That's, that, that's something. But, um, 
I, I just keep coming back to this idea that there are two things at play here. One is that interest rates need to go higher. And the other thing is interest rates cannot go higher. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's essentially, if you boil everything down, everything around us now, that's essentially the quandary that we're faced with, is that they need to go higher, but they absolutely cannot. Isn't the answer to that that either rates need to go higher and they can't go higher, therefore the dollar has to go lower? Well, which, yeah, exactly right. That brings us on to, to a place where you and I both kind of align. Because you know, we, we've gone backwards and forwards on the inflation thing. But I think we're both aligned on the dollar being the, the valve for this ultimately. And yeah, it's kind of bounced around. I've seen all kinds of end zone dancing in both camps on Twitter recently, both the, the strong dollar camp and the weak dollar camp have both had their kind of moment in the sun. Where are we, do you think, with the dollar right now? Gosh, I mean, it feels to me like we're just kind of in a holding pattern, waiting to break in one direction or the other. And I obviously have my view of what direction we're going to break in, which to me plays into this whole second half of the year slowdown where all of a sudden, you know, we go from 64% earnings growth to 20 right. on the way to 12 and GDP growth goes from 12 to six on the way to two and a half. Um, and, you know, the markets have to get acclimated to that sharp reduction in the, in the pace of activity. So I guess I think that the dollar is about to break substantially lower. But, you know, I'm, I'm definitely talking my book. Right. You're, you're allowed to do that. Full disclosure. Uh, Full disclosure. But, you know, you know, something else that caught my eye in your report this week that you pointed out, the, the, the kind of dichotomy between consumer spending, retail sales and borrowing. Just mm. talk about that, because those numbers were just mind-boggling to me. Well, it, this is thing that's been really fascinating during the whole COVID period. The degree to which consumer spending has been entirely tied to the delivery of checks from the government yeah. to your mailbox. In the months when checks hit mailboxes, you see huge increases in retail sales and spending overall. And the months when they dry up, they're are big declines in both of those. Um, and relatedly, you see what's happening on, on consumer borrowing, where when you get these huge checks from the government, in addition to spending, consumers go out and they actually have been paying down debt. We have seen the most rapid decrease in credit card balances, um, really, in history. I mean, during the global financial crisis, I think uh, households paid down credit card debt at half the pace that they're doing so today. Now, admittedly, yeah. they weren't getting the kind of money from the government that they're getting now, but it is fascinating to watch. And it just feeds, sort of bolsters my confidence, which is dangerous, about this idea that consumers aren't going to absorb higher in price increases across the board because they're clearly exhibiting a desire even now to continue to repair their balance sheets and to use any excess saving um, to pay down debt and really put themselves in a better financial position, which intuitively makes so much sense to me because I know the pandemic isn't the same as the housing bubble bust, but in many ways, it had to be even more unnerving for people because they were thrown out of work and they were in a whole new environment yeah. and they didn't know 
when are they going to go back to work? When are their kids going back to school? How are we going to put food on the table? What are, you know, are we ever going to get back to our normal life? And that doesn't seem like an experience that's going to get people to say, hey, we've got some money. Let's run out and just spend it all and not save for tomorrow because we just learned that anything can happen, even the most unexpected things that you never would have imagined. Yeah. So I, I don't know. But, I, but, but, that, but, that, but that revolving credit number that you pointed out was, I mean, I'd, I'd had to check it. It just didn't seem like that could be the right number to yeah. me. You know, it went from, what was it in April? It was like, it was negative to the tune of a billion dollars, roughly, I think. Yeah. And I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, again, you see how this is correlated with the spending patterns. It's really, I think this is interesting. It's a different behavior on the part of the consumer. This idea that we're going to have cons the return of the conspicuous consumption days is really what why I point out that reduction in credit card balances, because it really, it's a really powerful pushback to that argument. And yet every time you turn on the financial news or pick up a newspaper, you hear the assurance, you know, well, those price increases will be passed along to the consumer right, and they'll right. just absorb it and they'll just suck it up and that's how it's going to be. And yet this desire to pay down debt really suggests otherwise. I know you're focused a lot these days on, on the housing market. And, and one thing that's interesting there, too, is that you're seeing home equity cash out is now running at its fastest pace since during the housing bubble. Um, yeah. So when you layer that on top of all the money they're getting from the government, it is interesting how little spending oomph we're getting from all of this, yeah. all this extra money. That's well, yeah, I, I was looking at, at mortgage applications this week, you know, and when you look at the you look at the numbers from from the MBA, applications are down, I think, fifteen percent year on year but they're down almost 10% from the same week in 2019, which when you look at the headlines around home prices and you see, I mean, the stuff that you see coming across your Twitter feed in terms of, you know, can you believe this, this house right. just sold for like <laughs> $3.5 million and it's, it's a, you know, tear down basically outside toilet. That's what right. I can figure out. <laughs> you know, so, something, something's not right there. And, and this, you know, this housing thing is global. I mean, I, I was looking at there's a there's a Knight Frank report that comes out every year, and they were and they were talking about the appreciation of house prices across the world, and it and it is across the world. This is not localized at all. And you look at the 12 month price changes in a in a bunch of countries. You know, in Turkey they were 30 percent houses up 30 percent in 12 months. Uh, New Zealand it was 22. The US was 13. Sweden 13, um, the UK was above 10. And these are already from high levels. You know, Canada was above 10, I think. Australia was close to 10. And these are all countries that have had remarkably strong housing markets. And I guess more importantly, need remarkably strong housing markets because, you know, ultimately, all when you look at everything that's happened from 08, to here, you know, began the policies that, that were put in place there began as a means to, to kind of stem a massive problem in the housing market. Okay, job done. But now, because of the additional leverage that's been applied into the housing market, because of the extra amount of reliance upon low rates for the whole thing 
to stay afloat. And because the average rate there is even lower than it was in 08 now, we have this global housing bubble, which, I mean, it's in nobody's interest for it to be pricked. As we've seen, there is no gradual deflating of a housing bubble. So I kind of look at that and I, I look at the OECD who've been talking about it. I look at the IMF who've been talking about it. And I look at a couple of Fed governors who have started paying lip service to, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe we need to look at the housing market because it, it, might, it might be a little bit of heat in the housing market. While they buy MBS right, every right, month. And every right. <laughs> exactly. So, so I, which, which kind of brings us back to that kind of if-then problem we had. If rates go up, Everything now, and I mean everything, is dependent upon them not doing that. It's not just the stock market. It's not just the housing market. It's not just the bond market. It's everything. And the housing market, you know, I've just been walking through that process in the UK as my daughter and her partner bought their first home. And, you know, it's, it's terrifying what these kids are having to pay to get a house that, you know, would have been affordable 25 years ago and it isn't affordable now but it's not a problem because they're just borrowing more and so you look at the there's an oecd housing they call it the housing affordability index which i, I find bizarre it should be the unaffordability index because the higher it gets the more unaffordable the houses i mean it's just it's such a backwards index <laughs> right. it's, it's just gone through where it was in 08 and a huge part of that move has been in the last 12 months this covid pandemic if you look at every housing-related chart price-wise, there's just a massive spike on the right-hand side of that chart. There's a massive spike in price. There's a massive spike in borrowing. The only thing that hasn't gone up, obviously, is interest rates. They've gone down and mortgage rates. They've gone down. But now we're seeing applications slow. We're seeing bids come back to the cities, which were kind of everyone was trying to get out of the city and move out. So there's an awful lot of turbulence in the housing market and I, when I'm looking at it, I see all kinds of signs that beneath the surface, there's just a huge air pocket in this housing market, not just in the US, but just about everywhere I've looked. I, I think I found about six or seven countries where housing prices were down over the last year. And they were, you know, 1.6, 2%, half a percent. I mean, it's nothing. So housing to me, once again, is potentially an enormous problem that everywhere is going to have to do it. You know, even Germany, German house prices, and German house prices never go up. You know, they go up half a percent a year and they're up 8% in the last 12 months. It's just, it's just un, unheard of for a place like Germany to see this. So that for me is something that people need to be paying really close attention to because, as I say, the headlines are all about price, but behind them it's all about mortgage applications and refinance and home equity lines of credit, all the stuff that doesn't make it into the newspapers tells a very, very different story. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the, I think the complacency around this housing bubble is that everyone ascribes it to a lack of inventory. Right. You know, they did, there was a problem with lumber, therefore they couldn't build. Meanwhile, you know, you could solve inventory via price, which we have, and you immediately, as you said, see the, the impact of that in terms of the drop in mortgage applications. But it, it seems like that's just another area, and it's a really important one, as you point out, 
where people are hanging on to this narrative that it's it's just a supply chain issue and that once that's resolved, everything will suddenly miraculously normalize. And even the Fed is on board with yeah. that whole thesis, it seems like. And again, buying into these sort of one-line received wisdom ideas is enabling people to miss what could potentially be, as you're highlighting, a huge story with incredibly destructive consequences for the economy broadly. You know, people are just not paying any, I don't think anyone's looking at the housing bubble thinking, well, when that bursts, we're going to have a real problem on our hands because no one thinks, I mean, do you get the sense anyone's really panicked about what's going to happen to the housing bubble right no, now? No, no, and I think that's probably a learned response from 08. They're thinking, well, we know what happens if the housing bubble bursts. They will jump in and throw $787 billion in it. Well, good luck with right. that, right? I mean, but, right. but you, know, you look around, the, look at, I mean, New Zealand has, by many measures, the biggest housing bubble in the world. And they said uh, last week, I think, a, few days, a couple of days ago, that they were basically going to stop asset purchases on the 23rd of July. And the reason they gave was was unsustainable house price increases. Now, look, it's not a huge market. It's not a huge country, right? And the, and the, the RBNZ has a pretty small balance sheet. But if you look at the chart of their assets, which basically bumble along you know, right the way through 2020, and they went from, I think, $25 billion to close to 90 billion in the space of 12 months. And house prices in New Zealand, which were already at nosebleed levels, have gone through the roof. So they've just stopped cold turkey. There's no tapering. They say, right, that's it. As of the 23rd, we're just not, we're just not buying any more bonds. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there because the, because the RBNZ made house prices part of their mandate a, a few months ago. So at least they're kind of following through with that and saying, well, if it's part of our mandate, we're just going to stop the stop the purchases, but mm -hmm. you know the, the the RBA have announced that they're going to taper. The Bank of England have said they'll taper. The Swedish Reichsbank, I think, have said at the end of the year. So they've got a bit more to go. But I think Canada Canada have tapered. Yeah. So there's a yeah. few of these central banks that are trying this. It's early yet, but obviously the only one that anybody cares about really is the Fed, because we, we know the ECB aren't going to taper anytime soon. Lagarde's made that very, very clear. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it doesn't really matter until the Fed does it. And if the Fed does it, it's a huge problem. But to your point about the dollar, the more they keep doing this, if everyone else is starting to taper, it's just, it's more fuel to that fire that, that, that puts pressure on the dollar. Absolutely. Well, I mean, does it strike you that the U.S. has a lower threshold of pain for interest rates than all of those economies that you're looking at in terms of, you know, your housing, your work on housing that you've done. You know, in theory, the loan standards have been tightened so much here that we shouldn't have that kind of a bubble experience. Again, this, this time will be different, you know, because we've been so much more responsible in the lending practices. Do you, you think that's really going to be the case? Or do you think that the U.S. is just as vulnerable as it was back in 2005-06 when the housing bubble began to uh, deflate? Yeah, I, th I think you just have to look at the fact that wages haven't gone up. House prices have. 
and yet there's a frenzy. So the only way to bridge the gap is to borrow more. Right. right? right. So <laughs> if you're borrowing more, but your wages haven't gone up, I don't think it needs any kind of forensic accountant to figure out right. what's going on here, right? I mean, the, the same thing's happening all over again. And, you know, I'm sure there will be a few more bits of paperwork done and what have you. But at the end of the day, when someone wants to buy a house and they go in and you know going in there's going to be other people bidding so you just kind of oh well let's borrow an extra 10 grand extra 15 grand and we'll and we'll just up our bid that's the way these things happen and instead of you know a handful of people borrowing massively to buy houses everybody's borrowing an extra 25 grand that they can't really afford but they can afford and so that's the problem i think what's happening this time around is there are an awful lot more people who are going to find themselves vulnerable at the first sign of any rise in interest rates rather than having a cushion. And, and I've, you know, I've kind of, as I've gone through this process with my daughter in the UK, I've, I've seen how this whole thing works. You know, they, they had a stamp juicy holiday in, in the UK until the end of June. And so everybody was trying to get these houses done and papered before the end of June to avoid paying stamp duty. You know, and, and there's me saying to my daughter, well, look, you know, if you don't get in of the month, the chances are ultimately the prices are going to adjust mm -hmm. after that right. to reflect the fact that everyone has to pay stamp duty. So it doesn't necessarily matter if you don't get this done. You just, you know, you'll, you'll bid lower and you'll pay the stamp duty and that's how everyone's going to have to act. Right. But of course, the mindset when you're trying to buy a house, you, you, you don't think about that. You just, we want, we've got to get this house and we've lost a couple already. And so we need to get the next one. So let's, let's borrow an extra 15 grand and make sure that we can put a bid in. So, I, I, you know, there doesn't seem to be any problem in available credit. That is for certain. There's no problem with, with people having access to it. And, and that, I guess, is where the trouble starts. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does seem like the banks, we, we had a bunch of bank earnings announcements this week. And the one thing that was uniform across all of the banks, it seemed like, was their struggle to increase loans. I mean, they are just having a hard time. So, of course, if they can, you know, step up their residential mortgage lending, they'll do that just because there's just a dearth of other demand for loans right now. I mean, obviously, if you're a company of any heft whatsoever, you're not borrowing from the bank. You're out here in the capital markets borrowing at essentially yeah, zero yeah. as far as the eye can see. So this has been a real problem for the banking sector for a while. And I guess they're probably all too happy to make as many mortgage loans as they can, regardless of whether they're you know, going to end up defaulting down the road or not. They'll, they'll cross that bridge when they come to it, just like they did in 2008 but well, so but, uh, let me just change the subject a little bit because you, you had another chart in your piece this week of corporate profits versus the S&P oh boy which <laughs> yeah which is which is I mean it's just an unbelievable chart talk a little bit about that I mean describe the chart and talk about what you saw from it because I, I whenever I read your pieces I, I just look at the charts and it's like oh my god and then the explanation is all below but the charts just smack you around the head and this one is just extraordinary well this is you know i definitely rely on the charts because my words don't live up to the images of the charts but this one's really simple and i i guess a lot of people probably don't even know that the government has a measure of corporate profits because right. nobody follows it other than you know nerdy economists and people like me. So, <laughs> but what I like about the government's 
measure of corporate profits is that it, first off, it covers the entire economy. It's not just the 500 largest companies. It gives you a picture of what's happening across small, mid and large size businesses. It's everybody. Second, it's more consistent with gap accounting standards. So it kind of eschews all of the shenanigans that you see going on in the accounting on by S&P. But most importantly, especially in the last few years, uh, the government reports its data in a total dollar level, not on a per share basis. So when you have these trillion dollar a year share buybacks, obviously that's inflating earnings. So you, I think it's been really helpful, at least for me, to look at the difference between what the S&P earnings numbers are saying versus what the government measure is saying, because so much of the S&P earnings picture is skewed by those buybacks that are inflating the, the earnings per share. But long story short, what the government data are showing now is that we've really had no growth in corporate profits since before the pandemic started, while S&P shows profits of, I think, 15 or 16 percent from the end of 2019. So, and that's not including this current quarter when they're going to be up 64% year on year. This will be the big number. But the point is that if you think valuations are stretched based on the S&P earnings numbers on the market, you ain't seen nothing relative to what the real profit picture probably is, at least as implied by the, the government measure. And the reason why I really follow this is that Historically, when you see a divergence between what S&P is uh, showing corporate profits is growing and what the government is showing, the government numbers have always won the argument ultimately. You know, the S&P numbers are extremely volatile around the government data, which tends to be much smoother and not as uh, manic in its swings. And ultimately, S&P always ends up reverting to the government profit mean, so to speak. So um, that suggests, again, you know, if if the government numbers are flat and S&P is up 16 and we have a repeat of that reversion to the the mean, people are going to be very disappointed in equity land about where profit growth is going from here. But yeah, with the numbers, because you had a table with a chart and I think the stock market cap was up almost $9 trillion, right? Was it $8.8 trillion? Yes. And Which mathematically happens to be exactly what we've seen in fiscal in and monetary stimulus. stimulus right? yeah, which is, which it's is like amazing. Coincidental. But, you, but right. you had, against that, you had profits up, what, $40 billion? $38 billion with a B. Right. So $8.8 trillion in stimulus got us a $38 billion increase in profits and a $318 billion increase in GDP. $318 billion in GDP growth yeah. on 8.8 trillion. I mean, it's just <laughs> mind boggling to when you, I put those numbers there just because you hear about every day how incredibly strong the recovery is, how this economy is a racehorse or whatever the analogy is of the day. And it's just on fire. And we've got 318 billion for our 8.8 trillion in monetary and fiscal stimulus. Yeah. To me, that's not strong. To me, that's terrifyingly weak. But right. So let's think about why it doesn't matter, right? Because obviously it doesn't matter. Because ultimately, these are the numbers that 
Yeah, I keep thinking about that Scott McNeely comment about um, about his share price after the dot com bomb. When you're saying, you know, what were you thinking? Right? Was his, was was the, I forget what the exact quote is, but it basically ended up with what were you thinking? Basically, castigating analysts for saying you were paying this for my stock, and if you work it backwards, what you were paying for my stock, I would have had to pay you every penny in profits for 10 years, blah, blah, blah. He went through yeah. highlighting just how ridiculous the valuation was. But it didn't matter at the time. It only mattered afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the beauty of your work is you dig into places that, that other people don't and you come up with these numbers. And I look at them and I'm thinking, this has to, I mean, this has to matter. Right. You, you cannot <laughs> Thank have you. You and $9 are the trillion dollars in market cap <laughs> based right. on an extra $38 billion in profit. That just doesn't make any sense. And, right. and yes, okay, the Wall Street banks are cheerleading like they always do. And yes, the Jim Cramers of the world are cheering it as they always do. But surely somewhere out there, there are still people who are investing based on, back to the F word, fundamentals. I mean, yeah. they have to be out there somewhere. And if if they haven't all been just chased screaming out uh, into the streets. Well, I was going to say they're all out of business probably. But. Right, right. But, but, but what, what do you think it takes for this stuff to matter again? And is the very best you can do just point it out at the time and be able to say, well, I, right. I, I, you know, I, did, I did warn you, whenever I'm standing right. in the street with smoking ruins all around them and kind of their clothes <laughs> in rags, you can just say, well, you know, I, I did say this was going to happen. Right. And what can you do? No, I mean, I, as I said at the top, you know, I remain optimistic that this stuff is going to matter. And I, you know, the obvious answer is it'll matter when the Fed's no longer providing the offset to it, which is just endless funny money as far as the eye can see. But that's a little too easy. And also we don't, right now we have no idea when that is. So we could, you and I could be sitting here having this conversation a year from now and it you know, like the two doddering old guys on uh, the Muppet Show, you know. Statler and Waldorf, that's us. Just saying the same stuff and the markets, you know, another nine trillion higher. But, you know, in terms of a near-term catalyst, I just keep coming back to this idea that we're going to see this dramatic deceleration in the pace of activity. And does that, you know, just the delta, does that get people to start to worry I don't know. It, it's for me. It's really a puzzle. I wish I had a better handle on how much of the marginal trade flow was these retail Robin Hood people, uh, yeah. and to what extent? Because for them, clearly the F word. They don't even know what the F word is, other than the one that most people would think we were going to yeah. talk about, and are woefully disappointed that we are talking about that. F-word. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, what people don't realize is every time you and I have these conversations, the hours it takes me to edit out all your passwords. I mean, seriously, it's I know. just I it's relentless. The, the mouth of a truck driver, but... Yeah. Uh, but, 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 you know, that, it's, it's interesting you talk about that Robin Hood stuff. You know, our, our mutual friend Peter Atwater put a really interesting chart out today showing, I think, Google searches for investing and stock. Just very broad mm. Google searches, and both of them have plummeted in recent weeks. You know, we've seen AMC get smoked the last few days. We've seen a lot of these meme stocks kind of run out of steam. And it, you know, it would be ironic if that's what it took to kind of make people start to, to kind of pay attention again. If, it, if, it, if the most ridiculous things 
going wrong made people start looking at the most sensible fundamental yeah. things but maybe that's what it takes but there's de- the steam is definitely coming out of that stuff you know i mean how how many stories do you read these days about the robin hood crowd and the apes and all this kind of thing i mean it's it dotted around but yeah. it's it's definitely not front and center anymore. well and you are as you said you know you are starting to see some of the frothiest areas really start to come unwound you know, Goldman Sachs has that index of the unprofitable companies, and that one obviously yeah. is down and has been underperforming the market for a while. You've seen, I mean, it's it's trudging, but you're starting to see junk yields actually rise relative to investment-grade yep. yields. I mean, again, you know, you have to kind of squint to see the saucer shape upturn there of, of junk relative to investment-grade, but there's a modest repricing of risk there. And maybe that's associated with the fact that the Fed is now starting to unwind that corporate credit facility that had basically nothing in it in the first place. But maybe yes. maybe symbolically that's got some people nervous. And then, you know, my favorite risk indicator is the gold copper ratio, which may sound a little obscure, but generally, you know, it's just a proxy for financial security versus economic security. I mean, the Dr. Copper, um, you know, the the metal with a PhD in economics, giving you an indication of what's happening um, with the rate of growth globally. And then gold, obviously, telling you a little bit about the, the financial health uh, globally. And the fact that gold, even on a down day like today, is outperforming copper yeah. is, I think, a really important signal. And that has you know, turned a couple months ago and continues to accelerate to the upside for gold. So I think those are important warning flags as to whether we build on here or whether the Fed comes in with some new announcement that makes it all irrelevant again. Um, I don't know, but... <laughs> well, I, I, you may know this. I, I, I've never actually looked into this, but do you by any chance know where Dr. Copper got his PhD from? Because I, I don't know whether he earned it. It, you know, it could be but, like an honorary PhD from a community college in Sheboygan. Bazooka Joe. A bazooka Joe. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Because it's, his, his track record was pretty good until fairly recently. Yes. But he seems to be struggling like the rest yeah, of us. Absolutely. Well, look, Steph, I think, um, I think we've noodled. We've covered say, a lot just of about, F words. We've covered a lot of F words, as I say. Not, not as many as I'm used to having to deal with in these conversations <laughs> off mic, but... Um, but we'll we'll save the viewers from from your uh, your sailor. Yeah, well, that's the last you. thing anybody needs that's to hear. Exactly, uh, it's appalling. So what, what's what's the thing that's most occupying you for the for the next kind of month? Is there anything that you're particularly paying attention to and think people should be mindful of, or are we just sitting here with our head in our hands, looking oh through our fingers, God. going, "Well, I didn't expect that to happen." Oh uh, no! I mean, I guess I'm going to be looking at the forward earnings estimates. That's really, I think, going to be key. Right now, we've got 12.5 or 13% estimate for 2022. And so as we get into this earnings season, I'm really interested, not obviously in what the current quarter earnings are, but to the extent that companies are actually willing to offer guidance and what type of guidance they're offering. I think that's going to be really important. And I know that sounds fairly obvious, but to the extent that People are really banking on an incredible boom in profits after what we've already seen. Uh, and the government numbers, as I, you know, we talked about, suggest we aren't anywhere close to that. I, I think there's real room for disappointment. But 
uh, where do I but know? I mean, it also takes us back. You know, those conference calls are also going to be interesting to see when they do talk about pricing pressures yes. and, and whether they're going to be able to pass those on. So, you know, conference calls are hardly the most riveting thing to listen to. <laughs> but uh, there are quarters when they're actually really, really important to listen to because you know, they tend not to get reported. The stuff that these little things that happen in the weeds... Now, you know who's, who's really good at this is Fred Hickey. Fred, huh. I mean, Fred listens to hundreds of conference calls every quarter. And Fred does a great job of pointing out the trends and what people are saying and whether it be tech or whether it be resources. He's, he's very, very good at that. I'm not sure. He, he's the guy I, I pay most attention to because I know he listening to conference calls so we don't have to because they are, they are incredibly tough to get through by the, by the oh, yard for, sure. for us he does. For sure. Well, Steph, I guess. And that's Fred with an F. So that's Fred with an F. There we go. <laughs> there you go. Fred with an F. Oh, if man. he was Fred with a PH, that would be <laughs> awesome. Maybe he'll start. Maybe he'll change the spelling of his name to be more hip. I doubt it. Um, uh, well, listen. That, thank you for that, Steph. Thank As you. always, I've thoroughly enjoyed sitting here for an hour or oh so and noodling this all around with you. Um, <laughs> what do you say we do it again at some point? I would love that. And in the meantime, we'll say a fond farewell. To our fair-weathered friends. <laughs> oh, oh my God! God. Hey, this hey, listen, is really. Before you go, before you go, seeing as you spent all the time thinking about F's, what's your Twitter handle? Oh my God! <laughs> At S Pomboy. Is that oh, right? Did I, I get it right? Picture. You got it right. Okay. You got it right. I thought I was going to have to right, say right. it's Steph, but it is with a PH. But. It is <laughs> at S Pombo. Uh, and you'll find me, should you wish to do so, at TTMYGH. Steph, I will cut the mic and you can swear to your heart's content. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Until next time. Ta ta. See ya. Fundamentals. I always kick myself for underestimating the probability that the That'll get it wrong because their track record is flawless in this regard. You know, F for flawless, fed, floundering. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my god! Nothing we discuss during the super terrific happy hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.